0: The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, I'm Josh Levine, Slate's national editor and the author of The Queen. This is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of October 7th, 2018. On this week's show, Slate's Josh Keating will join us to talk about how he tweet by Houston Rockets general manager Daryl Morey sent the NBA scrambling to salvage its business relationships with China. ESPN's Sam Miller will also be here to discuss the dominant Houston Astros, the Washington Nationals' bullpen highs and lows, and other big stories from the Major League Baseball playoffs. And finally, we'll chat with David Epstein about famed track coach Alberto Salazar's suspension for doping violations, as well as the heat and empty seats at the track and field world championships in Qatar. Joining me in Slate's Washington, D.C. studio is Stefan Fatsis. Author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hello, Stefan. Hi,
1: Josh. We've got some news. <laughs> da, da,
0: da, 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 do you know da, what da. I'm referring to? I do. And it's
1: a good thing that I do because
0: <laughs> yes. I'm part of it. It's a live show, our first one in a while. And it's going to be in Washington, D.C. for our hometown fans. December 3rd at Hamilton Live in D.C. We've done a show there before, have we not?
1: I think we have. No, wait. There have been other slate there shows. There have been other slate shows there, though, yeah.
0: And it's great. I feel like I've done it before because I've been to various Slate events there. We will announce guests and special things related to the show later. But for now, we just wanted to let you know the tickets are available at Slate.com slash live. Again, that's Tuesday, December the 3rd in D.C. Tickets are available at com slash live. Go there for tickets and for information. If you want to see me also, I've got a book event coming up Tuesday, October 15th at the Potter's House and Adams Morgan in D.C. A lot of fan service for D.C. folks. If you want to hear about the Queen, I'll be there. I've heard about it. Tuesday, October 15th.
1: But I'll go anyway. Thanks, buddy. Get ready for the greatest roast of all
0: time, the Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion, gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. On Friday, Houston Rockets general manager Daryl Morey tweeted the message, Fight for freedom, stand with Hong Kong a reference to the pro-democracy protests that the Chinese government has in authoritarian fashion referred to as close to terrorism. The Ringer reported on Sunday that Mori did not anticipate that his tweet would spark an international incident, but that's exactly what it did, and the scale of that incident has kept on growing, with the league's Chinese partners expressing outrage and threatening not to broadcast Rockets games, and the Rockets organization and the NBA and Mori himself feverishly trying to contain the damage. Joining us now to discuss is Joshua Keating. Josh is Slate's international editor and the author of the book, Invisible Countries. Welcome. Thanks for having me. All right, let's get into the NBA's attempts at damage control in a second. But first, Josh, give us a little background on the protests in Hong Kong and why Maury's tweet, which might seem inoffensive to those of us who are not in the Chinese government or in China, why it would have elicited such a strong response.
2: Right. So these massive protests, uh, which are the biggest the city has seen in decades, they began last spring in response to a proposed law that would have allowed criminal suspects to be deported to mainland China. And people in Hong Kong feared this could lead to the Chinese government targeting activists and critics who right now are more or less free to operate in Hong Kong. Now, that bill has been withdrawn, but the protests have continued and the demands of uh, grown to include the resignation of the city's chief executive, investigation into police violence, and full democratic elections for for Hong Kong. Now, from the Chinese point of view, Hong Kong is part of Chinese territory, and it views these protests, these protesters as dangerous separatists, uh, and it has accused them of being backed by foreign powers. You know, so you know, they've been extremely sensitive to, any foreign show of support for the protests, whether it's coming from a major political leader like Nancy Pelosi or it turns
1: out from the general manager of the Houston Rockets. The reaction was quick and feverish from China. You mentioned television not wanting to broadcast Rockets games. Uh, there were sponsors that said they're going to drop out. Apparel companies said they're going to drop out of involvement with the NBA. The Chinese Basketball Association, which is headed by Yao Ming, uh,
0: former Rockets star, and the reason the Rockets are – so popular in China, denounced
1: Daryl Morey. So it's everyone fell into line here very, very quickly. And the obvious issue here is that the NBA has made China the essential focus of its international business. It is a gigantic market. Something like half a billion people watched NBA telecasts last year in China. But what is shocking here is just the, the how rapid the NBA's response team was Maury, after pulling down the original tweet, posted two tweets on Sunday night. I did not intend my tweet to cause any offense to Rockets fans and friends of mine in China. I was merely voicing one thought based on one interpretation of one complicated event. I have had a lot of opportunities since that tweet to hear and consider other perspectives. And then he went on to say that the Rockets and he support Chinese fans, etc. And then the NBA put out a statement yeah, that was also very, very forgiving without <laughs> saying f- we forgive. Um, we recognize that the views expressed by Maury have deeply offended many of our friends in China, which is regrettable. While Daryl has made it clear that this tweet does not represent the Rockets or the NBA, the values of the league support individuals educating themselves and sharing their views on matters important to them. We have great respect for the history and culture of China and hope that sports and the NBA can be used as a unifying force to bridge cultural divides and bring people together.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a a script for how these apologies go. I mean, the NBA is stepping into uh, territory now that a lot of brands have faced when they, you know, the 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 way it's often translated is hurting the feelings of the Chinese people. That's a that's a line that comes up again and again. Uh, Recently, there've been a host of controversies. Mercedes apologized for using the Dalai Lama in its advertisements. We saw the Gap apologized for undermining China's territorial integrity because it sold a t shirt of with a map of China that didn't include Taiwan. So, you know, you've had again and again these controversies with brands that want to operate in China and sort of come up against freedom of speech issues or touch these hot button issues that really provoke a massive amount of controversy in China. You know, it's it's one thing when it's Mercedes or the Gap. I think when you have industries that sort of pride themselves on being platforms for free expression, whether it's you know Hollywood or social media platforms or or academia, universities. I I think then you you know things get a lot more uncomfortable when you sort of pride yourself on you know allowing people who work for you to express themselves, uh, and you at the same time want to operate
0: in uh, this country that does not allow for that. Republican politicians have, I think, rightly accused the NBA of hypocrisy for saying we're not going to play the all-star game in North Carolina because of the transgender bathroom bill, which is a good move. And now when China says, oh, actually, you can't say that pro-democracy protests are good, saying like, oh, you're right. We're so sorry. How dare we um, offend you? We respect China, please forgive us. We'll do anything. I mean, we'll see what what they end up doing because, you know, this is also really awkward timing for the NBA. This is the most important week of the year mm-hmm. for the NBA-China relationship stuff. And there are all these preseason games happening.
1: There yeah, two games in China.
0: LeBron and the Lakers are there. Adam Silver is there.
1: And the Brooklyn Nets are there who are owned by the founder of Alibaba, the Chinese Amazon.
0: Yeah, Joe Tsai.
1: So the story is going to keep... Getting uh, legs
0: just because all of these these teams, these players. You know, James Harden has already commented on it and apologized for some reason. Um, but the story is just going to,
1: I think, keep escalating this week. Well, what's stunning to me, Josh, Josh too, is that the NBA's statements and the the statement that was written for Maury are so obsequious. I mean they they read to me as if they were written in Chinese and translated back to English. I mean that quite literally. Yeah. Um, and that wouldn't surprise me and I I guess should it? Yeah,
2: I mean it, I'm I'm honestly surprised this hasn't come up earlier. I mean if you look at the NBA is, you know, uh, on the one hand wants to be this politically progressive league that allows, you know, people like LeBron James and Greg Popovich to take political stances and speak their minds. And on the other hand, it's, you know, staked its economic future on selling its wares in the most repressive, one of the most repressive countries on earth. At a certain point, those two impulses were going to come into conflict. I think it's interesting that it wasn't a player that this came up with, that it was a general manager. I mean, I I think it would be sort of harder to imagine. I mean, James Harden has already distanced himself from it. But, you know, a player who's trying to market himself as a brand in China is probably going to be a lot less likely to say something like this than, you know, a general manager who probably, you know, probably didn't anticipate that the firestorm he was going to uh, start. Uh, On the other hand, like, it makes it a little weirder for the Rockets to say that, like, you know, it has nothing to do with the team when it's, you know, a, a... fairly prominent member of the organization in management of the organization making this statement.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's not just the NBA. It's individual players that have sort of staked a lot of their economic futures on China. I mean, you've got guys like Clay Thompson who have mega endorsement deals in China. You know, Kobe Bryant is uh, like the most famous person in China, probably. (laughs) Well,
1: next Uh, to Stefan Marbury, who's not in the league anymore, but he's got a museum of his own in China. (laughs)
0: Yeah,
2: and I, I don't think we should understate the Rockets-ness of this because, you know, they, because of Yao Ming, the Houston Rockets, according yeah. to one survey, are the second most popular team in China, after the Warriors, um, you know, players like Shane Battier and Tracy McGrady, just by virtue of having shared the court with Yao Ming, uh, ended up being huge celebrities in China for years afterwards. I so, mean, that
0: probably adds to the offense, right? Yeah. This notion that the Rockets are our team. Yeah. You know, we, entrusted, we entrusted Yao to them. they had Chinese them. advertisements on their jerseys for a while. And then yeah. they, they insulted us. They did mm-hmm. this to us. That has to be a factor. I mean, Josh, if you— think about the nba's you know business plan for the next however many years you would say the reason to be optimistic from a purely financial perspective is that compared to every other multinational like sports entity they've made the greatest inroads in china um the biggest potential blocker to their success is maybe china will decide it doesn't like basketball anymore <laughs> is that fair to say like i guess one thing that i'm i've been thinking about is like okay what what is the downside here for the nba is it possible for the chinese government to impose you know sanctions or blackouts to such a degree that um, it would make an, an enormous impact on uh, on the NBA. Well, you know, it, it it appears the NBA is going to play ball with this, so to speak. Well, the NBA clearly doesn't want to know what the downside is, but I just, I guess, I want to know, like, is it realistic? Like, is there obsequiousness warranted for just for purely financial reasons? I think so. I mean,
2: I, you know, if you look at what's happened with Hollywood, Hollywood doesn't make movies like. Seven years in Tibet or Kundun anymore, and there's a good reason for that. Back back when they were doing that, it enormously offended the feelings of the Chinese people, and now you see, you know, Hollywood studios bending over backwards to, you know, remove anything that might possibly be considered controversial in China, and I think that uh, the NBA is following the same script now. I mean, in the um, the last Times Magazine, there was a big feature about the NBA moving into India. And in that piece, Adam Silver talks with great pride about, you know, basketball becoming the second global sport after soccer. And, you know, that's very nice. But, you know, if, if you're going to do that, you're going to run into some of the same kind of controversies that international soccer has. And, you know, if, if you want to market yourself in these societies, you can't all of a sudden say uh, no we're not a political organization, we don't take political stands. If you're operating in China and you are, you know, acceding to um, Chinese Uh, sensitivities in this way and allowing the Chinese government to censor what your employees are saying, then you
1: are taking a political stance. I'm sorry. This is the bargain that every major sports organization has made, particularly in the last decade, as they've cozied up to the money that's available from authoritarian regimes. I mean, the Olympics were held in Sochi. Uh, The World Track Championships just this past weekend, this past week, have been in Qatar. The FIFA gave the World Cup to Qatar in 2022. The Olympics were in Beijing and the Winter Olympics are going to be in Beijing again. I mean, this is a, a, a bargain with the devil that international sports have chosen to make. Um, and the NBA at home sort of has has built an image as almost bulletproof against these kinds of criticisms um, and. And it also is put in the position of being very selective about how it responds to these kinds of political problems. The NBA supported Enish Kanter, the basketball player, the Turkish player who has been threatened with you know, death by the Turkish regime for being outspoken. Back in January, Adam Silver supported Kanter when he chose not to go to England because he was worried for his safety to play a game. Um, Adam Silver has been critical of of Trump's travel ban. Stan Van Gundy, the coach of the Pistons, compared the ban to Hitler registering the Jews. I mean, the NBA is making a very deliberate choice here.
0: Yeah, and I think it's pretty clear now that if Cantor was Chinese and was engaged in the same kind of rhetoric about the Chinese government that he does about turkey and erdogan that the nba wouldn't support him i mean i thought how could you come up with a, a, a sure, I mean, another it, i a thought there yeah it's a very clear comparison
2: because turkey wasn't showing trailblazers games during the last playoffs specifically right. because canter was on the floor so you know i don't if if it were china not doing that i think the reaction would be very different
0: so we have found the last bipartisan issue I mentioned Republicans before, but like Ben Rhodes, one of Obama's advisors, as well as like Julian Castro, they're all outraged about this in addition to like Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio. Um, It is this just odd situation, Josh, where it feels like everybody in the US, whether political or NBA fans or or like everybody is like the NBA is screwing this up and this is wrong. The way they're reacting to this is wrong. And yeah, we all seem to be sitting here and saying like the economic realities of this for the NBA are such that they have to be reacting this way. And it actually isn't that surprising, even if we're a little bit surprised by the specific language we use. Is there like any possible way to triangulate here or are we just stuck with like this is bad and wrong and they're going to do it and we're all just going to live with it?
2: I mean, it's this weird moment in history we live in when you have two superpowers who are geopolitical competitors and ideological foes, but are at the same time have these deeply intertwined economies. I mean, we maybe we romanticized in the Cold War that, you know, blue jeans and Beatles records behind the Iron Curtain helped undermine communism, but now we have this setup where, you know, China's the one making the blue jeans and, you know, they're they're letting in the Beatles records, or, so to speak, but have, you know, one or two notes they'd like to give. Uh, and it's, it's a very different kind of moment of international competition and ideological clash that we live in now. And I, I think that the NBA is not alone in this. It's something I mentioned that movie studios, universities, all kinds of companies have had to deal with. But, you know, at a certain point, when you operate in China, you have to make a choice as to whether you're going to play by the rules of a government that isn't interested in free speech and isn't interested in sharing ideas on certain issues. And it
0: you know, it looks like the NBA has made that choice. Josh Keating is Slate's international editor, the author of the book Invisible Countries. We're going to continue the conversation in our Slate Plus segment this week. But for now, Josh... Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. The Los Angeles Dodgers have made the playoffs for the last seven years and have won zero World Series, making them failures and losers, I think we can all agree. Last year, they lost to the Red Sox four to one in the series, thanks in large part to Boston's decision to use its best starting pitchers out of the bullpen. This year, the Washington Nationals are using the same strategy against the Dodgers with mixed success. I would say about as mixed as you can get on the success front. Getting into that mix with us is Sam Miller. He writes about baseball for ESPN, and he's the co-author with Ben Lindbergh of The Only Rule Is It Has to Work. Welcome back, Mr. Miller. Thanks. Hello. All right. Let's preface all this by saying we're recording this segment on Monday morning. On the busiest day of the baseball playoffs, meaning that there will be four games we can't account for, which is maybe a mistake. But we're just going to like plow ahead right into that mistake, steer into it. Own it. So the Nats. Nats manager Davey Martinez looked like a genius when he used his ace, Max Scherzer, out of the bullpen. And the Nats won game two. He looked like less of a genius when Patrick Corbin, another starter, gave up six runs in two-thirds of an inning, costing the Nats Sunday's game three, putting them down two to one in the best of five Division Series. But Sam, I'm wondering if it would be wrong to actually frame this as a choice on Martinez's part, given that his usual relievers are so bad, and that also this is just now accepted playoff strategy. Like, this is what teams do.
3: Yeah, both of those things are true. I think, uh, I mean, we always talk about a team's strengths and weaknesses going into the postseason, and it's um, a little bit misleading to just say that the Nationals bullpen is a weakness. The Nationals bullpen is one of the worst bullpens of all time. They were Uh, worse than the, you know, 111 lost Tigers this year. They were, I think they had the ninth, uh, ninth or 10th worst bullpen ERA since 1988. uh, And they're by far the worst bullpen in postseason history. Now that that's a little misleading because the players who were pitching in April aren't there in September, but the players who were pitching in September also were not good relievers. And (laughs) to be clear, I mean, look, when you think about a baseball season, you've got more innings that you have to get through, then you have good pitchers. And so what you do is you you shuffle them around so that you try, if you can, to use your good pitchers when the game matters the most and then give them rests when the game doesn't matter as much. And that kind of dictates a lot of decisions that you make about how long you're going to let your starter go and who you're going to bring in to relieve in a six-run game and all of those sorts of things. But in the postseason, you have enough good pitchers, generally speaking, to get through the innings in a five-game series. And so you can really emphasize the pitchers that you really trust and then throw everybody else aside and don't use them unless you really have to. And for the Nationals, that only is true for their starters. They just don't have good relievers. And so they're trying to basically use uh, their their starters on their throw days. Uh, which is the day that they throw a bullpen in between starts. And so instead of having them throw 30 pitches in a bullpen session, they're having them throw 30 pitches in the seventh inning. Or if a starter isn't going until game four, they might have him available in game one. And if a starter's already pitched for the last time in the series, then maybe he's available for the rest of the series. And this is a tried-and-true postseason strategy. Everybody can remember Randy Johnson, for instance, pitching in the 2003 World Series, or Madison Bumgarner pitching in the 2014 World Series, and um, it's become more and more uh, aggressive the way that managers look for opportunities to get their starters in because they really don't want to give a single inning to a pitcher that they don't trust. The Nationals don't have really any, I, I guess they kind of have relievers they can trust, but not not really, not the way that you trust your top three starters. Their top three starters are basically three of the top ten starters in baseball. And so, um, yeah, I think this was very predictable. This is what the Red Sox did last year on a sort of a more staff-wide scale where all four of their starters were occasionally pitching in relief. And pretty much every day, the storyline in uh, early in the, in the game would be which starter is in the bullpen, which starter is going to be available. And then that's the name that you're kind of looking for warming up in the bullpen as the fifth or sixth or seventh inning comes along.
1: But the Nats' problem really is that the starters that they want coming out of the bullpen – are the same starters that they want starting every game, if that were possible, Steven Strasburg and Max Scherzer. I mean, Patrick Corbin is a very good pitcher. And last night, Sunday night's decision was not the wrong one. And as you said, it just didn't work out. Um, But it was the right thing to do. My question, Sam, is do we have enough data to show how much a pitcher like Scherzer or Strasburg actually could pitch in the postseason? We're talking about a total of possibly 19 games. How much could they realistically go if you really wanted to push this? I mean, could um, Scherzer have come back and pitched another inning on Sunday night? Could Strasburg have pitched another inning on Sunday night?
3: Well, I don't think so. I think that you're usually limited to basically one of those pitchers a day. You're not usually going to have any pitcher throw back-to-back Days if he's a starter, unless it's a game seven, and I, I think that there is—I uh, don't know if data is the right way to look about uh, to look at it. The pitchers are going to be really uncomfortable, I think, if they start getting asked to do more mm-hmm. than they currently are. I think the Nationals are probably maxing out as the Red Sox did last year.
0: So this is partly a consequence of the division series being five games, and also there's the wild card round, which is a one game single elimination. So for the Nats,
1: it was 20 games. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So there are structural reasons, Sam, like each of these games is more consequential than they would be in a seven-game series. Um, Is baseball, like, actively encouraging this kind of behavior where, like, I mean, it does make each game feel kind of different and special and, and more intense, and that can't be a bad thing.
3: You mean because of the days in between the travel days?
0: Or just like if you're in a if it's a best of five series, each individual game winning or losing it is like a life or death thing. Like I maybe you disagree. Like I feel like in a seven game series, you would maybe be a little bit um, more careful about using your your pitchers in this way. But I guess the Red Sox were not in the World Series.
3: Yeah, the, uh, the flip side to that is that the seven-game series are even closer to the end of the postseason. And you see teams get even more aggressive as they get deeper into series and deeper into the postseason because then they really know that, like, here's where the, the whole thing is going to be decided. I think that the that partly it is the rest. It, it's that you have—you know that once you start looking at Game 4, Game 5, that— you're going to have uh, a day or two in between series, and so you just are are going to ask players to do more. But the the bullpen throw day, for instance, you know, having those thirty pitches be in a game, you could theoretically do that in the regular season. And I think every every winter, people will sort of say, "Hey, that the way that they did things in October, I wonder if they could do that in the regular season," and it's just that you don't have. Probably the stamina to get through a season, pushing everybody to their max. I mean, you saw these regular season, this regular season, the contending teams were really, in fact, uh, quite proactive about giving their their players more rest than they needed, uh, making sure that they weren't going a bunch of days in a row or going deep into games, and that's so that they could get here and really push people to uh, to the to to their, uh, what, to the max. No, that's it. Yeah, uh-huh. so that they. They could really push people uh, to to sort of their um, to to their to their limits.
1: Um, it doesn't seem like the Astros really need to worry about pushing anybody to their limits just yet because their top three starting pitchers are extraordinary and have been extraordinary so far. I mean, it's we've only played you know a few games, but still, um, is this an issue for them as well? I mean, is this an issue for the teams that have sort of? been doing okay so far that are not up against the wall um, and facing elimination that have been turning in better starting pitching performances and have stronger bullpens?
3: Well, the Astros' first two starts have been two of the greatest postseason starts of all time. And so they have not needed to do it. Um, But they would. I mean, look, in 2017, uh, when the Astros won the World Series, um, Lance McCullers was one of their... Uh, dominant relievers down the stretch he was in their rotation before that and Charlie Morton was pitching out of Mm -hmm. the bullpen he was in their rotation before that so they were also I mean this isn't a with the Nationals this is a desperation move with the Red Sox last year it was a little bit of a trust move but the underlying premise of it is just that your starters are generally your best pitchers they pitch better when they're used in relief because they can air it out, and because they have longer sample sizes to really be able to trust that they are the pitcher that you think they are, and so you want to get them into the game, and so I wouldn't surprise me if we saw the Astros get to a point, especially when they're facing more uh, challenging opponents, where they were also a little bit more creative about this. I don't know. M- maybe not specifically the Astros with this specific staff, but um, but probably there's uh, there are situations in the World Series where you could imagine... Uh, Garrett Cole starting a game and Justin Verlander being his reliever. It, it's not. It's not. It's not that uncommon. It, it's exciting when a starter comes in. Yeah. We think they're really good.
0: So the Astros with Verlander and Cole and also Zach Grinke, not a bad third starter, um, are looking like uh, they're they're in pretty good good shape uh, against against the Rays. We're recording this before Game Three, but um, the Yankees are are also up in their series. The Dodgers are up. In their series, um, this is, uh, you know, it's looking like a postseason, Sam, where um, the shit that worked in the regular season is working in the playoffs. And that's going to set us up for some extremely uh, powerful (laughs) matchups in uh, the later rounds.
3: Yeah, there's a I mean, one of the reasons that the postseason is usually so chaotic is because there's not that much of a difference between the teams. They're all kind of like 95 win teams. And when you put them up in a seven game series, there's not enough difference between them that you can really expect talent to win out. And so it kind of becomes chaotic. That's sort of different with the Astros and the Dodgers this year in particular, who are two of the all-time great teams. And if you look at something called third-order winning percentage, which just measures the team's pitching and offensive strength and then estimates how many wins they should have, these were... I believe, two of the three best teams since 1950. And so the difference between the Astros and the Rays, for instance, they both have, I would say, comparable pitching staffs, maybe the two best pitching staffs in baseball. And you think, ah, that's a pretty good matchup between two good teams. And then you look at their lineups, and I don't know, the Astros maybe have ah, the six best players in the two teams' lineups. Maybe, I think, if you were... To take the Rays' second best hitter, he might be like eighth or ninth in the Astros lineup. Uh, they're just a, an absolute powerhouse from top to bottom. They're the the Astros and the Dodgers are both two of the strongest defensive teams. They have two of the strongest bullpens. They have probably the two strongest starting rotations, probably the two strongest lineups, and probably the two strong the two deepest teams. And so there is a kind of a big difference between the Astros and the Rays, or the Dodgers and the Nationals. And so that's why I think everybody was a little bit more comfortable making predictions in this postseason. I think at uh, ESPN, something like 29 of 30 of our predictions were the Astros getting to the World Series. And I think the Fangraph's postseason odds uh, had the Astros at something like 35% to win the World Series, which is a you know going up against seven other postseason teams. That's a really striking difference.
1: And yet the Yankees won 103 games, 104 games. What was it? Um, and it seems like it might be difficult to really evaluate them because their season was so racked by injuries. So when we talk about the Astros and the Dodgers having this enormous talent and performance advantage statistically and historically, how do you even figure out where to put the Yankees at this point in this, in this discussion?
3: Yeah, it's tricky because not only did the Yankees not have a bunch of their best players because of injuries throughout the year, they had a kind of historic run of injuries, but the players who replaced the injured players actually played better than the players they were replacing (laughs) were supposed to play. And so now the better players are back, but you would probably expect that the better players will do worse than the substitute players did playing for the regular (laughs) players. So it's all very complicated. The Yankees are extremely good. I mean, they're a super team over the course of uh, the last, you know, 20 years, they would have been the best team in baseball, probably like 12 or 15 of them. And so there's absolutely nothing that stops them or another team from beating the Astros. I I think it's like last year's Astros were also extremely good, almost as good as this year's Astros were. And they lost to a, a Red Sox team that was on paper, not as good as the Astros. And not only that, but they lost to a Red Sox team that they out-hit and out-pitched in the series that they lost. So if you just look at the performance that each team's hitters and pitchers had in the ALCS last year, the Astros actually were slightly better than the Red Sox, and they still lost. And so uh, there's plenty of room for, I mean, that's why it was only 30% or whatever for the Astros. There's plenty of room for an upset uh, in in either league. But the Astros and the Dodgers, I mean, there's, I, I don't know. I don't always root for the best teams to win, but there is something about seeing these two teams face in these two in this season where I think it's maybe the two best teams that each franchise has ever put together uh seeing them play uh to kind of decide who is the the best team of this super team era would be satisfying in a way
0: curious for what both of you guys think uh, about this question which is is it necessarily more interesting or exciting when in baseball these great teams play each other because in the playoffs As you've been saying, Sam, it's not like greatness necessarily wins out. And a lot of the best kind of memories that I have as a baseball fan are of greatness not winning out. Like the best postseason games aren't necessarily the ones where, you know, the great hitter went up against the great pitcher. It's just like some random dude getting a random hit off some other random dude. I guess, Sam, are you more pumped for this because you know about like kind of the all-time historical awesomeness of these teams? And I guess, same question for you, Stefan, when Sam answers.
3: I am right now. I, I think that the last two or three years, one of the big storylines of baseball has been the emergence of these super teams, these really incredible teams. And I would include the Yankees in that. I think the Yankees are also... Um, a team unlike most that we saw for like the decade that 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 came before this. And so I uh, just knowing that, uh, as you say, Josh, at knowing how good these teams are, it feels like a waste to not see them run into each other and smash heads in the postseason. Although metaphoric smashing of heads, no, none of the concussion protocol, smashing of heads, I am sensitive to that. Um, and so, uh, yes, I think that in this case, I'm rooting for the favorites. There would be... I don't know. The chaos is also fun. The um, writing about the team that you haven't written about 12 times is also fun. But I just think that the last few years, there has been a through line through these postseasons that has made the postseasons more interesting. It's made the regular seasons a little bit worse because there haven't been a lot of close races. But the flip side of that is that I really want to maximize what I get out of the postseason. And having had these these same teams go up against each other in some really epic series, and some really epic games, some of these same players becoming both goats and heroes against each other uh, has been satisfying. And I sort of am pulling for that storyline to, to keep going this year. It maybe may just this year, though. I would actually like to sort of see some of these teams get worse going forward. Uh, <laughs> but right now, I'm in it.
1: We haven't mentioned the other team that's ahead in its uh, series, and that's the Atlanta Braves, who are up 2-1 to one over the St. Louis Cardinals as we speak. And, yeah, I mean, I, I don't really have that much interest in seeing the Atlanta Braves play in the World Series this year. And I think that there is something Will about— Will
0: Ronald Acuna run out his double? Like, like that's a storyline that I want to see I'm, every day I'm for I'm the not, next month.
1: I don't want to see that storyline. But I think, I think, Sam, you're exactly right. There are moments in— sports culture where we recognize that these are sort of transcendently good teams and we want to see how they will perform against each other and I think that's where we are and I think that you know as a as a lifelong Yankees fan I think Yankees or Astros I'd be happy with you know either Scenario going up against the Dodgers in the World Series, I'd be happier. Obviously, with the Yankees winning, but from a watching Justin Verlander and Garrett Cole and Zach Grinke pitch some more would not be disappointing. And I don't think either of those outcomes—Yankees, Dodgers, Astros, Dodgers—would be super disappointing. From a wow, we're watching two of the greatest teams, you know, of, of potentially all time play each other in the World Series. Thank you, Stefan. And thank you,
0: Sam. Sam Miller writes about baseball for ESPN. He's the co-author of The Only Rule Is It Has to Work. Thank you, Sam.
3: Anytime.
4: With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. We
0: became brothers that day when he did that to us.
1: We made a change.
4: Fighting for what we deserve.
3: Search for amazing sports stories
4: wherever you get your BBC podcasts.
0: All right, I wanted to let you know that in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, as discussed previously, we're going to have Josh Keating back to continue our discussion about China and the NBA, and we'll get into Joe Tsai, the new owner of the Brooklyn Nets, and what role he is playing in this scenario. If you want to hear that and you're not a member, sign up for Slate Plus. It's just $35 for the first year. You can do that at slate.com slash hangupplus. Sign up there, slate.com slash hangupplus.
1: The 2019 World Track and Field Championships wrapped up on Sunday night. The United States won 14 gold medals, tying their best performance ever, including the last two of the event, the men's and women's 4x100 relays. But two stories overshadowed the event itself. One was its location, Qatar, and all the baggage that comes with letting a human rights-challenged Petro state in the desert leverage its billions to attempt to buy international sports respectability. The other was a decision by arbitrators in the United States to ban the Nike-affiliated long-distance track coach Alberto Salazar for four years for a series of doping violations. Here to discuss all of this is our friend David Epstein. Dave is the author of the new book, Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. He's also a former reporter for Sports Illustrated and ProPublica. Good to have you back, Dave. Thanks for having me. You're basically responsible for the Salazar case in some ways. Your reporting for ProPublica along with reports by the BBC back in 2015 helped to push forward the investigation by the U.S. anti-doping agency, USADA, that led to last week's arbitration ruling. Salazar was found to have committed three anti-doping violations, but they fit a much larger pattern involving his sketchy use of drugs and treatments for his athletes over a long period of time. The first whistleblower went to USADA a decade ago. Explain for us, Dave, what Salazar was accused of doing and who did the accusing. Well, so the things that he actually got sanctioned for um, were,
5: so you said, three different counts. One was... Uh, coordinating and participating in these banned infusions of a normally legal supplement called L-carnitine. But uh, Salazar and a doctor working with the team who also got banned for four years uh, wanted to get more of it into athletes muscles than you could do with with pills, for example, or or a drink. And so they infused it intravenously and way in way larger amounts than you're actually allowed to based on. Uh, on on anti-doping rules. Uh, Secondly, he then told athletes not to declare that to um, any doping control officers. So that was a charge for – so there was the band infusion tampering uh, with doping control. And the last one – Involved participating in an experiment where Salazar rubbed testosterone gel on two of his sons in different amounts to test in a Nike lab to test how much it would take to trigger uh, a positive test, and so that that was also not allowed. But going back to you mentioned you know, my reporting with the BBC uh, in you know, a couple of years ago, and when we were doing that, honestly. In many ways, what we thought was the more important conversation was this use and misuse of prescription drugs, athletes getting prescriptions they didn't need, using the drugs in ways that they're not indicated. But none of that is even covered by water rules. So for us, a lot of this, we wanted to bring out this public conversation in the sport that wasn't even going to be considered for anti-doping violations because it's not even in the rules. I think it will be eventually, but but at that point and this point, it, it wasn't and isn't.
0: You mentioned in the piece that you wrote for ProPublica recently Dave, that this was a case where Salazar wasn't sanctioned for positive doping tests, that there was other evidence that was brought in. And that that's not actually unusual. You can look to Balco and, and Lance Armstrong. But is there an argument to be made? Like if you were on Salazar's defense team here and Salazar is appealing, like, is there an argument to be made that the evidence against him was not actually that strong? Maybe I mean so
5: it, it is abnormal actually to have uh, a sanction not based on a test in in the scheme of things. The thing is, a few of the biggest sanctions, the or or most prominent sanctions like Balco, like Lance Armstrong, like this one, have come in the absence of a positive test, and that's something that's becoming. Or at least supposed to become a little more common in the sense that WADA code was revised to allow anti-doping officials um, to pursue cases based just on intelligence as opposed to positive tests. As far as the defense, you know, I, I, certainly that that opens up certain options. That said, some of the things like um, the testosterone test—I mean, after our story, Salazar admitted to it. What he said was it was not for the purposes of doping; it was to see how much would cause a positive test. In case someone tried to sabotage our athletes by rubbing uh, testosterone on them. So he so he admitted to all he he disputed the motivation um, or we didn't say what the motivation was. He explained that the motivation he said was not didn't have to do with doping, uh, but he admitted that the test occurred. And his emails show that he was uh, telling people on the team not to disclose the infusions to doping control officers. So I think those are pretty well nailed down. It would have to be, and he's going to appeal to the court of arbitration for sport. And the court of arbitration for sport would have to say that for some reason, there was some technicality where these didn't, in fact, violate the regulations they seem to or something like that. But, but the facts of
1: those, I mean, he, he acknowledged. What's really an issue here, Dave, is that this was a coach that was looking to push his, his medication of athletes and his training of athletes to the very, very, very limits and find loopholes in doping guidelines that would allow them to take things that would give them an advantage. Possibly, and you mentioned earlier that this often involved prescription drugs, and your reporting turned up examples of Salazar getting, procuring for athletes sleeping pills, painkillers, asthma and thyroid medications that weren't prescribed to them for the usual reasons that these kinds of medications are prescribed and uh, to, to specifically to get a competitive advantage. Um, among those athletes were Galen Rupp, Um, Salazar's protege, um, there's a story that you tell in one of your pieces from 2015 about Salazar mailing Rupp two pills that were taped to the inside of a hollowed out pages of a paperback. I mean, it's clear in reading your reporting that Salazar was trying to push this potentially to the ill health effects of his athletes.
5: Yeah, and I think again, like the pills in you know that he sent internationally to kind of avoid customs scrutiny. I mean, these are other things he acknowledges. Again, it's yeah. just that they are not even they're not even covered by like they're illegal <laughs> according to U.S. law, but they're not covered by anti-doping regulations, which is sort of an odd situation. But the the arbitration panel, I mean, the ruling was sort of interesting because the the arbitrators said, uh, and, and I should point out, so Dr. Jeffrey Brown, who was the doctor that worked with the team who was also sanctioned by you know a partly separate arbitration panel and in independent hearings and everything was sanctioned for the same three things for the same amount of time. That said, the arbitrators in their ruling say that they believe Salazar was not trying to commit uh, doping violations, just that he was constantly pushing the medical no. edge and, and sometimes went over it. You know, that said, he clearly, again, Acknowledged to violating laws. <laughs> in that could be an argument, drugs.
0: actually. So if you're somebody who actually thinks the rhetoric around PEDs is too alarmist, then this could actually be an argument that what Salazar is doing is worse, maybe. That he is, by this you know, abuse of prescription drugs, off-label usage, that he is risking athletes' health, even if you think that the general conversation about all this stuff is too overheated.
5: Right. So I think sometimes the general conversation about health, like it depends on the PED, but sometimes it's clearly overheated, right? Like remember a a book that had a big impact on policy was called Death in the Locker Room. And it was about how if we didn't get the steroid epidemic under control, like high school locker rooms were going to be filled with bodies, you know. And so it, it was definitely a lot. Well, and that the guy who wrote it is now like a prominent figure in the legalized HGH movement. So he kind of came full circle there. But I think we're not alarmist enough in some cases with some of the drugs involved in here, like thyroid hormone, which is used widely and all this stuff. The problem is when someone goes on it, some of these people are going to need to be on it for a long time or potentially the rest of their life. Like once their body adapts to being on it, at least for a long time, it'd be difficult to get off. So you might really have a very long-term impact on an athlete's career by having them use something like that when they don't need it for a long time.
0: Maybe I shouldn't have been surprised, Dave, but I have been by Nike's continued support of Salazar even after the suspension came down. They've not distanced themselves from him.
1: No, In fact, Nike's uh, president, Mark Parker, doubled down in his defense and the company's defense of Salazar just last week. Like wouldn't
0: it it have been the like obvious corporate move to be like, oh, yeah, like this guy seems bad. We're going to distance ourselves from him and we don't support cheating.
5: Yeah, I mean, I don't know what's in the mind of of Nike executives, but if you remember, with Lance Armstrong, right, it was like basically when pro cyclists sort of showed up at the gates of the headquarters is when they really started to to distance themselves, or when some of the parts of the USADA investigation, where uh, you know a fellow cyclist testified that like he grew up in a drug ruined household, and then suddenly his you know cycling was his escape, and and his boss then was telling him he had to do drugs or lose his job. It was this this sort of other stuff that really once the pressure built, that they backed away from Lance Armstrong, and the pressure hasn't built that way. For Salazar. And again, I think the fact that the arbitration panel said, well, we don't really think he was trying to violate anti-doping rules. He just kept doing it because he was always pushing the edge. And they leaned, you know, Nike and their statements had leaned heavily on that. Plus, Parker is named in the arbitration panel as having known about this testosterone experiment right. that was going on. And so I don't know. I mean, you're, you know, you're running a public company and your name gets brought into this, like your first instinct might not be to roll over and apologize. It might be to, you know, support your guy for the appeal. And it looks like that's what they're going to do.
1: You mentioned how other cyclists reaction to, to Armstrong helped finally push Nike The response to Salazar hasn't been at all defensive among track athletes, though. It has been very, very critical. I mean, there have been athletes that have left Nike. Um, It was a huge topic of conversation at the World Championships last week. Let's play a clip from a U.S. 1500 runner, Jenny Simpson, asked about her reaction to the Salazar arbitration decision.
4: I mean, anybody that knows any about this sport knows that there's a black shadow, black cloud, whatever the analogy you want to make over that group. And so why anyone chooses to be a part of that group, I have no idea. Um, And so, yeah, I mean, anyone that's shocked isn't involved
5: in the sport. So that was that was Jenny Simpson um, commenting about the reputation of the group. And, and Nick Willis, another very prominent runner for New Zealand, said, finally, I don't have to keep my mouth closed about this anymore. And I think the interesting thing about those two being publicly critical is that in, in a lot of other sports, I think there is often like a sour grapes, you know, those people are just mad they're getting beat. But Jenny Simpson and Nick Willis have been like among the best in the sport for like a decade. So it's it's definitely not a sour grapes because those people, you know, on Nike Oregon Project are beating them sort of thing. And I think one of the reasons that that ProPublica and the BBC got into reporting this in the first place is that we were hearing sort of so much, uh, uh, you know, basically encouragement in the track world to go investigate this group because there were so many rumors and they're just being discussed on like the Let's Run message board. And it's kind of like, well, let's put some facts and have this actual discussion Out in the open, you know, I I still understand why some of the people join that group, though. (laughs) Um, But if if that's something you want to talk about,
0: because the people in the group were getting good results and they wanted to get good results. Yeah, I mean, there are huge advantages, right? Like running is not it's not like just going to another
5: NFL team. It's like you go somewhere and suddenly with with the Nike Oregon project, you might have way, way more resources and and medical assistance, and underwater treadmill and all
1: these sorts of things and than, money. than you'd have in the next step down
0: and money. And, and Salazar is like this guru who people like flock to. Right. If That's you're not right. familiar
1: with Salazar, he won the, the New York Marathon three times in a row. He's been a public figure, one of the few big public figures in track, one of the few celebrities in track since the Late 1970s. That's
5: right. And, and some of the athletes defended themselves as saying, well, I guess one of them said he hadn't even heard about any of this, but that they're coached by Pete Julian, who's an assistant coach at the Nike Oregon Project, and sort of saying like, well, you know, he's my coach, so this has nothing to do with me. Um, that, that didn't seem to land that well with, with some of the other athletes who were being critical.
0: There are a lot of athletes that are still affiliated with the Oregon Project and with Nike. Um, and is it correct to say that none of them have been sanctioned for doping, Dave? Yeah, that's right. So there's nothing in the arbitration panel that even accuses any
5: of the athletes of anything. So, no, I wouldn't expect any of the athletes to get sanctioned.
1: All right, let's uh, talk a little bit about the World Championships. They were in Qatar, as we mentioned. Outside, the air temperature was close to 100 degrees most days. Uh, The events, though, for track and field were in one of the new stadiums that are being built furiously for this event and for the World Cup. Open air arena, but air conditioned. So climate controlled in there for the athletes. Inside there, it was in terms of the, I think the performances were as if they were somewhere else. A lot of people didn't show up. The stands were often empty, which is another pitfall of having an event there until later in the week where it seems like organizers dragged migrant workers in to help fill the stands. And then the outside temperatures were an issue for the long distance events, the marathon the women's marathon was held at midnight and the men's marathon as well. To a huge try to
0: number of competitors dropped, dropped out, out. of the, the heat. The
1: long-distance race walking also was held in the basically the middle of the night to try to, to alleviate some of the heat issues. This isn't going away. I mean, it's absurd. Isn't it a little bit, Dave, that they're holding this track championship in a place like Qatar?
5: Yeah, I mean, I think I saw that something like forty percent of the women's marathon competitors dropped out, which is which is kind of crazy. Obviously, there's an easy solution to this: air condition the entire marathon course. Yeah. Um, No, but it's it's an interesting thing. I was at the Pan Arab Games in 2011 trying to find athletes who had trained through the Arab Spring, and one of the things that that sort of shocked me a little is that. Nobody showed up to anything except except swimming and a couple of the equestrian events. And on day two, they made the tickets free to everyone and still nobody showed up. And there's no culture there of most of these sports. Right. So it's like going and and I think Qatar has seen, you know, I don't know if they've seen the natural gas writing on the wall or whatever it is, but for a long time now, they've been trying to, I think, diversify their exports. And that includes trying to become a major player in global sports, which, which they have done, right? They have the world championships. They have the world cup coming. Um, when I was in the countryside of Kenya, there were, uh, you know, runners there who are like grown up there, born there, except we're running for Qatar in international competitions because they'd gotten, you know, paid and a, and a quick citizenship change. Um, but it doesn't seem to be going all that well. Like it, it seems to me that trying to build a sports culture top-down, and I'm not sure if we've ever tried that anywhere before, is not really going that well in Qatar. Because in theory, I would say, well, just because of heat, we shouldn't, we shouldn't uh, say that a certain country can never enjoy hosting certain sporting events. I think it's the combination of the fact that the people there aren't interested in them, uh, and you go there anyway and deal with all these other obstacles that makes it seem like a very strange choice.
0: Yeah, also a repressive regime and, uh, you know, Issues around like the deaths of migrant laborers aren't going to make anybody feel like super great about having the event there either. And you know, we talked earlier in the show about the obsequiousness of you know officials trying to walk back Daryl Morey's statement about China. But here, uh, you know, it didn't seem like anybody was super you know reticent about criticizing the event um, and Qatar, like Kevin. Meyer, the decathlon world record holder from France, called the whole world championships a disaster, Stefan. Yeah.
5: This is a really interesting thing that I've noticed when it ranges to, uh, you know, whether it has to do with with doping or it has to do with where an event is. Athletes in track and field have really, like I, I've reported on doping in a number of sports, hockey, football, baseball, um, and you, The vast majority of athletes you talk to are like, ah, it's a tiny problem. Almost nobody's doing it. Few bad apples, whatever, which isn't true. But in track, it's like a bunch of people are doing it. Go get them. You know, this other stuff is corrupt. It's like the sport has really developed. And I think this partly goes with being an individual sport, um, and an individual sport that's struggling, um, but also just this, for some other reasons, I think this culture has developed of um, calling things out. You know, I think the athletes who love and have dedicated a lot of time and effort to their sport don't want it to die. And I think they're starting to sort of like rise up a little bit.
1: Right. And and the the issue here is that we often forget that these events matter to the athletes too. So it's all well and good for the International Track Federation and the IOC and FIFA to try to squeeze as many dollars out of places that have not been traditional sports cultures. But kind of ruins the event for the athletes themselves for the greatest athletes in the world who are participating in these days long and weeks long events and
0: and it's not like they have that many opportunities on like the world's biggest stage yeah, Like they have right. maybe a handful in their entire life to have events that are this big and right. they I show mean, up and nobody's there. If they're really good, they do. Yeah.
1: Right. And, but it's not only that nobody's there, but if you're a women's marathoner who is peaking in 2019 and this is your chance to win the world championship and they are literally carting away the runners on stretchers and wheelchairs because they've collapsed because of the heat at one or two in the morning <laughs> – I mean, what kind of an event is that funny. for the athletes? Not
5: good. Not a good one. I guess if it's good for some athletes who were major underdogs, because whenever you see this and and you see some of the favorites go out with leaders and sure. and fall apart, there's always people who sneak in. Like in 2004, when the U.S. came back from like the the nadir of U.S. distance running, I think we we like in the 2000 Olympics. We didn't even fill all of our qualifying spots to have people at the Olympic Marathon. And then in 2004, we had a medal on the men's and women's side, Dina Castor and Mebka Keflezighi, And they both didn't even warm up, wore ice vests ahead of the start, and then went out really, really slow and picked people off over the course of the race. And so for underdogs, you know, sometimes you see some inspiring underdogs in these stories for all the other nonsense that's happening.
1: David Epstein is the author of Range, Why Generalists Triumph in a Specialized World. We'll post links on the show page of Dave's work on the Nike Oregon Project and Alberto Salazar. Dave, thanks a lot. Thanks for having me. Now
0: it is time for Afterballs. There's a segment on the show each week. We call it afterball, Stefan, and you deliver a little monologue. Just want to prep you in case uh, you've forgotten. Uh, we did not have Afterballs last week, so we got to get back in the groove here. There's also an Afterball name each week in which we honor a an entity individual
1: thing from Word the world of
0: sports something
1: yeah did you have something in mind yeah sure since we just talked about the world track championships we mentioned the women's marathon And how crazy hot it was. It was like 90 or plus, 73% humidity. They ran it at midnight. And Dave Epstein, our guest, said that what happens in these situations often is that people you don't expect to do well end up finishing, surviving this like attrition and have like life. Altering, you know, to peak
0: moments. This is an event where a participation trophy was warranted.
1: And the participation trophy in the uh, World Championship Women's Marathon has got to go, Josh, to Roberta Groner. 41 year old American, three boys, not so young, look like they're in their, you know, adolescent ages, teenagers, um, had given up running for 10 years, mm-hmm. got back into it after she had had her kids. Mm-hmm. Because she wanted to do something that they could be proud of, her time. She was obviously an elite runner before that. Got back into it, did really well at a marathon in 2017. Qualified for the for the U.S. team for the Worlds uh, with a, a time at the Rotterdam Marathon, and ended up finishing in in Qatar. She ran two thirty eight forty four um, and finished sixth. That's very impressive. Crazy, Roberta Gruner.
0: We salute you, Stefan. What's your Roberta Groner?
1: Last week, walking crime and misdemeanor Donald Trump compared House Intelligence Committee Chairman Adam Schiff to Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. It was weird, and I could explain what he said, but what the hell, let's just listen. You know, there's an expression, he couldn't carry his blank strap. I won't say it because they'll say it was so terrible to say, but that guy couldn't carry his blank strap. Do You understand that? My friend, the lexicographer Ben Zimmer, did an incredibly thorough job tracing the history of jock and jock strap for the Atlantic. That's what Trump wanted to say, jock strap. Ben reported that jockum, as slang for genitalia, dates to the 16th century in England, where it was eventually shortened to jock. In America, the undergarment to keep the testicles in place during exercise via a triangular piece of cotton attached to butt cheek hugging straps was invented in 1874. The first known mention of a jockey strap. Discovered just the other day by a baseball researcher named Richard Hirschberger, was in a sporting goods catalog in 1884, and the first jock strap in print was 1886. American athletes soon after became known as jock straps, and by the 1950s, that was shortened to just jocks. Can't slash couldn't carry his, your, my jock or jock strap, of course, means that someone is so inferior to someone else that they're unworthy of holding even the stankiest article of athletic equipment belonging to the other person. Ben traced the first use of the phrase to journalist Bob Considine's 1967 memoir It's All News to Me, in which Considine recalled using it in the 1930s to compare himself unfavorably to another newsman, Dan Parker. My own database diving found that some form of the phrase was used steadily into the 1970s and 80s. New York Daily News sports columnist Dick Young liked it a He usually used it to defend old timers. Mickey Mantle, he wrote in 1976, knew there were guys making $200,000 a year and none of them could carry his jock. A few months later, Young wrote that Babe Ruth's widow, Claire, would tell her friends that Roger Maris couldn't carry the Babe's bat and that Henry Aaron couldn't carry his jock which seems maybe a little bit racist. Most of the usage is like that, bitter and or boastful. In 1977, Rod Carew said that Reggie Jackson can't carry my jock on a baseball field. In 1983, Pete Rose claimed that he heard younger players disparage Stan Musial when he visited a clubhouse. They say, who's he? He's too old, he can't hit. Meanwhile, they couldn't carry his jock. Barry Bonds said this in 1998, of his teammates on the San Francisco Giants. There isn't a person in the locker room who can carry my jockstrap, and I'm not saying that to be derogatory. Of course he was being derogatory. Probably the most famous non-jockstrap carrying occurred in 1985. Larry Holmes had just lost to Michael Spinks and lost a chance to tie Rocky Marciano's record of 49 fights without a loss. Holmes and Marciano's brother had been beefing about who was better. Here's Holmes at the post-fight press conference
4: i'm 35 years old fighting young men and he
0: was he was 25 years old fighting old men i can easily put him down and i can even, easily say his brother in the back he, for him
4: i mean if you really really want to get technical about the whole thing rocky couldn't carry my jock strap.
1: Holmes would later apologize, and then in 1988, he'd say of young Mike Tyson, he's just an overgrown kid, you can write this, Mike Tyson can't carry my jockstrap. Holmes, though, said that with a smile. Some jockstrapping seems overblown, like in 1995, when end-of-career Minnesota twin Dan Gladden asserted that Rich Amaral and Alex Diaz who hit a combined 19 home runs in 18 major league seasons, couldn't carry his jock. Or in 1989, when Buccaneers owner Hugh Culverhouse said of Pete Roselle, I don't believe there's been another commissioner in any sport that could carry his jock strap. Or when Jose Canseco said that Babe Ruth and Hank Aaron couldn't carry Mark McGuire's jock. Or in 2002, when released Cardinals long snapper Trey Junkin said his replacement couldn't carry his jock which would be hard to do while long snapping. Anyway, in the last two decades, the jockstrap business has been all but killed by the rise of compression shorts and the use of the jock's signature phrase has plummeted with it, which makes sense because if an athlete doesn't know what a jock strap even is, how can someone else not carry his? Which brings us back to Trump. The president, of course, is frozen in time somewhere around 1977, so can't hold his jock strap would be a familiar put-down for him. The question is why... Would Trump think that saying jockstrap is somehow vulgar? My theory is that it's like when Trump said that Hillary Clinton going to the bathroom was disgusting. A jockstrap touches balls. Balls are gross, just like pee, poop, menstruation and other routine bodily functions. In Trump's mind, it's vintage weirdo germaphobe Trump. He's pre-adolescent. Swearing at subordinates, typing bullshit in all caps on Twitter, talking about shithole countries. That's fine, but saying jockstrap is obscene because, ew, gross. Anyway, Donald Trump couldn't carry James Buchanan's jockstrap. Josh, what's your
0: Roberta Groner? So, we've been doing the show for more than 10 years now. Uh, we've been doing the show long enough that there was a time, Stefan, when I'd prepared for the Hang Up and Listen Sports podcast. Without having a DVR. Can you imagine? Wow. Can you imagine? I can imagine because I can remember it. I had a VCR. I don't think I ever taped anything on VHS over the weekend to prepare for Hang Up and Listen. That was more of a 1980s kind of activity, though. I don't know if my, my parents still have my old Simpsons tapes. Anyway, getting a little off track here. But I do remember like planning some weekend stuff around like, oh, I have to be home to watch such and such a sporting event. That's no way to live. But so DVR was very useful in uh, helping to prepare for for the show. And uh, so I didn't have to necessarily manage my my life around various sporting events over the weekend. Um, And then in in 2017, Stefan, everything changed. Everything changed. That was the the year, the time when, without warning, Comcast, which is my uh, cable provider, disabled a function on its DVR where you could no longer set recordings remotely so the way that it had worked was you're at home you're you got the remote you got the guide oh this thing is happening on Saturday I'm gonna record this uh all well and good but also if you had your phone out in the world and you're like Stefan is like oh this thing is happening and then I could just like you know, press the record thing on my phone. I wouldn't have to rush home immediately. Who wants to rush home immediately? But then in two thousand and seventeen, that functionality got disabled. And nobody really wrote about it. It was only written about like a little bit in trade publications. But what what happened was that there was this dispute over patents between Comcast and Roe v Corporation rovi corporation which uh was the maker of the tivo and tivo had all these patents they're just like uh, look i'm not any kind of patent expert but to my inexpert eye these are like very generic they're like patents uh, about remote dvr recording which are basically just like we have this uh this idea this technology that means that like nobody if if they don't license this from us nobody can like allow you to, like, hit a button on your phone and set a recording at home. It just seems bad and wrong. Patent trolling. Patent trollery, I say. Um, I looked into it a little bit more, and it seems like Comcast had this licensing deal with TiVo, and it expired, and they didn't renew it, but every other cable provider had had a deal with TiVo and had renewed it. And so TiVo and Comcast get into this, like, long back-and-forth, like, legal battle um, where... TiVo is, like, filing all of these, like, claims against them. And this one worked, um, that the U.S. International Trade Commission ruled in favor of Roe v. Corporation. This is from a Reuters article in 2017. Um, and prohibited Comcast Corporation from importing and selling certain types of set-top boxes because of this. And so I kind of got used to it like that this is just a small way and Mitch, my life got worse. And then, upon my return from being away this past week, Stefan, I notice that the functionality has returned to my phone. Hallelujah. It's a great day, great time to be alive, great, great time for America. The TiVo patents, two of them, apparently expired recently, and so Comcast is now able to add this functionality back The war is not over, though. The CEO of TiVo said recently that he is, quote, committed to this lengthy legal process (laughs) and says just a great a great thing that you want to hear on an earnings call, and also said the company has hundreds of patents it believes are related to Comcast's X1 platform. This is from a story on lightreading.com. So I don't know, Stefan, I don't know if I should declare victory or just be afraid it's going to be taken away from me again. But I do know that on Sunday, I was downstairs, the TV is upstairs. I was like, I want to see how this Cardinals Braves game is going to end. I just like can't record on my. But I don't want to walk all the way upstairs. I didn't have to walk upstairs. It was amazing. It was liberating. I'm going to get so much less exercise now. It's. I'm a happy. I'm a happy guy. So please, Comcast and Tivo, just get it together. Figure this out. That is our show for today. Our producer is Melissa Kaplan. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. And at last, a live show. You can reiterate slate.com live. If you want to go to our show on December 3rd in DC. If you're still here, I'm also guessing you might want to Listen to even more. Hang up and listen. In our bonus segment this week, we continued our conversation with Josh Keating about China and the NBA.
2: When you talk to people in China about these issues, about you know questions of territory, you know whether it's Hong Kong or the South China Sea, you often hear about you know this history um, that China had with Europe and the Opium Wars and what they call the Century of Humiliation. And there's this idea that now China has sort of recovered its power and is, can be assertive on the world stage. But
0: there's a real kind of sensitivity that comes across with that. To hear that conversation, join Slate Plus. It's just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangupplus. For Stephanie Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember, it's my Beatty, and thanks for listening.